Welcome to the Five and I'm on podcast. I am your host Shane Hazen. Coming up on today's episode, Matthew Olm. He's kind of a jack of all trades filmmaker locally who's worked uh, predominantly on uh, faith-based films or as he likes to point it family films um it's a fascinating industry uh, especially when you get into the regional aspects of it and it also fulfills that you know weird thing for me of uh evansville filmmaker especially working evansville filmmaker is just a fascinating subject subject to me so um but first up what i watched this week um uh, i finally um I, I didn't go all in on the Criterion channel, but I've, I've had like I I really didn't dive into Filmstruck back in the day just because their lack of commentaries. Um, but I wanted to see a uh, camera person, um, so and that was the only way to avail- watch it streaming online. So I went and got the 14 day trial and then started watching a few other stuff, including this um, uh, Alex Ross Perry documentary, half hour documentary on Paul Schrader, which is which is pretty fun. Um, it um, you know Paul Schrader is alternately incredibly insightful incredibly smart and alternately um very depressive uh fatalistic and um yeah i don't want to say too many negative things because he's he's obviously a national treasure and we only and as he likes to point out we only have him for a few more years um but uh it ends with these really funny series of tweets and um he at one point or his facebook post which if you haven't subscribed to uh, following paul schrader on facebook i highly recommend it especially because it was it, it hit its hi, uh, height during last year's oscar campaigns when he was campaigning for a first reformed uh, screenplay nomination or to win he, he got nominated um and a24 told him to get off uh facebook which is covered in the documentary but there was one particular one where uh he said something about incels and he's like uh, he's like, incels would be a fascinating subject. I've been writing about it my entire career, um, amongst other pearls of uh, things he's written about on Facebook. Um, but the notable thing I wanted to talk about I saw this week was um, uh, after not really having seen anything on my trip to Iowa, I decided to catch up on some of the January is, especially if you worked in a theater, you know, January to uh, mid-March is um, an elephant's graveyard when it comes to theatrical releases. It is just, it's just dumped bomb movies that don't work. And it's, it's just a really the darkest season, especially uh, if you have a seasonal affective disorder uh, just because of winter and never it. So it, um, but I went in and uh, previous guest, Aaron Smith recommended, I see Gretel and Hansel. And, um, he said that was the best thing he, that was, that was playing now. And, um, it, (laughs) the movie didn't work. It, but there's definitely some artistic, uh, things going by. It's directed by Oz Perkins, who, um, is the uh, eldest son of Anthony Perkins. And, uh, is also nephew to Marissa Berenson from uh, Barry Lyndon. Um, and the, the, there's obviously a lot of art and care. He's directed, um... I, I had the vibe that he was making a studio jump from a uh, indie because he directed uh, two movies I haven't seen but I heard about. It's uh, Black Coat's Daughter and I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House, which actually on on reflection and looking it up, it, it was a Netflix movie, so I don't know if Netflix bought it or it had some money behind it too. But this, um, um, like I said, there's some really good images in there. He shoots, they do the uh, uh, 235 to 133 switch early on. Um, he, um, and, uh, weirdly enough, the movie I kept thinking of while watching it was Andre Rublev. 
just because the production design on it's really solid. And um, Sophia Lills from uh, It uh, is in it. Uh, she plays uh, Gretel. And, um, you know, obviously they invert the uh, Hansel and Gretel title for a more um, Gretel to be the more predominant character in a feminist uh, way. And I can't say the movie worked. It's... Uh, <laughs> The funny story was that as I was leaving the theater, I was in an empty theater and per Evansville, the, um, or excuse me, one other couple was in there and per Evansville, that couple was talking the entire time. And when I get out, uh, they stopped me at the bathroom and were like, Hey man, you, you watched that movie, right? And I said, yeah. And they were like, that movie, that movie's bad. Right. And I kind of started defending it very tepidly and, um, they stood to their ground. Uh, they had to stop me at the bathroom to let me know that the movie I just watched was not good, which is is a little harsh because the main point I want to make is in this Elfin's Graveyard of January, February, um, you get these movies that have some monicum of inspiration behind them, and there's some interesting stuff in them, even when the movie doesn't work on its whole. Like, like you could see Oz Perkins is going to make a good movie down the line, um, and there's some really inspired stuff in here. And, you know, it was, it was a movie that was under 90 minutes, and I was really antsy, like, 45 minutes in. Um, but um, Oz Perkins, he's, he's solid. I mean, I think, I think he's going to make some, something good down the line. So uh, keep you an eye out for him. So Matthew Ulm is the guest today. Uh, Matt, I met at the, uh, as we talk about on there, I met at the Alhambra Film Festival a few years ago, which is a local film festival in Evansville. I think it's since, we, we talk about it, it's since not, is sh- uh, shuttered, but um, Evansville has a few film festivals, oddly enough, including one that Matt himself runs, the Victory International. And um, we, we talk, obviously we talk about his journey from Terre Haute, Indiana to here, um, and uh the thing I found fascinating was I initially wanted to talk to him about how uh, he makes a living working at Evansville and not making his own films necessarily. He's uh, as, I, coming in. I've known him for a bit, but I, I had to really pester him about, uh, well, what is it you do? And later he confessed to me like he's, he's all he's everything. He's um, he's he's been a cameraman. He's been a DP. Uh, he's, he does he's being PA, uh, especially on these very low budget, low crew shoots. Then he has to be a jack of all trades and do everything. And um, but further we got into the talk, I started finding um, I think in ep- the episode with Aaron Smith, uh, he and I talked a little bit about um, the faith based movies, which um, if, you've, if you've been around a, min- a multiplex in the Midwest, you know, especially after church crowds on Sundays, those are giant money makers in the Midwest. And um, maybe on the coast that you don't notice this phenomenon, um, but they make a ton of money. And so uh, I I mainly wanted to pick his brain about his insight into that industry, which um, when people in Hollywood particularly talk about it, it's something they want to uh, commoditize or take um, um, just take advantage of. And so... We we do, we dive a little bit into firsthand experience of what it was like to work in that that fast that part of the industry. So, I uh, hope you enjoy. First off, I should mention uh, we first met at the Alhambra. And yes, 
So had you been going to the, it's the Alhambra Film Festival in mm-hmm. Evansville. How long had you been going to it and working for it? I think that was year, the only the second year when you were there, wasn't it? I think we had had year one, and then that was year two okay. that you came. And so, how many more years did you do after that? I think I was only involved the next year on the tech team. And then the year after that, it coincided with a shoot, with one of Troy's shoots on It Came From the Stars. Troy Davis? Yes. So we were shooting that during the time of the Alhambra. Okay. So it was just a conflict. And at that point, I think they had run into some issues anyway. They were kind of scrambling for a location and that type of stuff. Well, when, so. did, the, um, when did the seed for uh, um, Victory Film Festival come in? You know, Roger McGarry, who's my finance director on the festival, had been involved with the Alhambra, and he's from Seattle, so he had also done some stuff at Seattle International. I didn't and I know don't, Seattle's a pretty good film festival. Yeah, I don't know what capacity. I've never really picked his brain on that, but he had an interest because of that, and he's from the area, and he came back to take care of family. And when the Alhambra went under... He knew me in passing, and so every time he would see me, he'd be like, when are we going to do another festival, and come on, let's do it, that type of thing. And so it finally got to be at the end of 2018 that I was just kind of tired of hearing it. And I liked the idea and the smell of doing festivals, and I thought it was a shame. Yeah, (laughs) and I I thought it was too bad when the Alhambra didn't continue. And I'm I'm big about community, and Evansville is my adopted city, but I like the idea of bringing something new and changing the format a little bit and so roger was kind of the one that kept hounding me so wait where, are you, where are you from terra haute. haute so not too far away 100 miles okay up i mean the road i knew you went to indiana state but uh yes so wait how many theaters does terra haute have or how did they have when you were a kid well that's interesting my parents were not like big into movies you know we got a vcr early on but that's mainly where we saw a lot of our films as kids so the meadows had a two i think that ted called them a pillbox theater where oh, it's just a big concrete yeah. edifice with two screens and then there was one in north Terre Haute that was again just another one of those two screen kind of theaters and then the indiana theater it might not have been a dollar theater when i was a kid but it was pretty darn close is that the one that's by indiana state or down to it's a couple blocks south of campus yeah but it's right across the street from the swope art gallery is it like an old victory theater or something like that it's actually i would actually say it's nicer than the victory in a lot of respects it was built in like 1924 and it was built in a Spanish Mediterranean style. And I think everybody's commented on the fact that the Victory on its exterior is really nothing remarkable. It's just brick. Right. But the Indiana Theater is one of the classic movie houses. Okay. You know, it had the arches and you walk inside into a big two and a half story rotunda. And then you go into a barrel vaulted space where you would pick up your snacks and et cetera and so forth. Well, the reason I said Victory was not specifically downtown. I thought yes. the Victory was a franchise. Like that was because I know when I went to uh, Austin, there mm. uh, the Paramount Theater looks very much like uh, the inside of the Victory for a few times I've seen, only just bigger, a little more grander and right. more restored, basically. Yeah. Although yeah. the Victory had a pretty good restoration back, was it late '90s? I think. Yes. Um, yes. So wait, what movies would they show at uh, this, uh, uh, at the, what, what was the theater again? The Indiana. The Indiana. The Indiana The only was, theater in Indiana. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was always a little bit seedy. So to be honest with you, I was not really taken to the Indiana until I was in my teens and going to movies on my own. I think that the Indiana theater had the longest 
running midnight showing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show of any theater in the United States. Okay. It wasn't until they started renovating it in the late 90s that they stopped showing it because of all the garbage. So, I mean, all the college kids would go down there and they'd bring all the props and everything and they'd throw stuff at the screen. So I think it ran for like 25 straight years, wow. midnight showings of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I saw Rocky Horror Midnight in uh, the Mesker Amphitheater. Uh-huh. I mean, and to this day, I'm like, I still don't know, like, did they drag in a 35 millimeter projector? Do they have one? I mean, yeah. they showed it on 16, but because uh, they yeah. never, I, I've, I've never seen them show movies there except that one time. But um, I think they've done other movie showings out at Mesker Park. Uh, I know that I, I know that they still do Rocky Horror from time to time, but I thought they did more than that. that. Makes I've sense. never seen one. I've never seen anything in the Mesker Amphitheater, actually. I, which is kind of crazy. Well, I actually that's yeah. I'm sure maybe they show kids kid stuff there. But probably. I know I I've never seen a movie in Terre Haute, but I came close. I used to camp at Sullivan State Park. Yeah. Or is it State Park? I forget what it was. A private park. Anyway, yeah. I remember I was trying to convince my grandma. Uh, my oh my whole family wanted to go see Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, and I was <laughs> I I was trying to convince everyone. And that was that period where like I didn't have a car, and I just anytime someone wanted to go see a movie, I was like, let's go, let's go, and I would be heartbroken every time it didn't happen to yeah like i remember when i was a kid i visited um my dad's best friend um we were friends with his son and he was going on a date to go see pretty woman and uh, he kind of like to be nice invited us even though he was going he was a teenager going on a date yeah and my dad was like no you're not going with them and i was so i cried under the bed because i couldn't go <laughs> see pretty woman and ruin my friend's date um so um Terre Haute, um would you went to indiana state yeah. What did you what did you study in Indiana State? I was a double major in business management and radio TV film. So What I, kind of RTF do they have there? At the time it was pretty grim. <laughs> I mean, when I started taking my beginning audio courses, we were still doing like cart and reel to reel, so they didn't have digital there yet. When was this? Uh, I I actually went my first year at Indiana University. So oh. 95 Fall of 95, I started there, and uh, right around spring of 96, I decided that it wasn't for me. I took, like, a single film appreciation course, which was interesting. I mean, we watched, like, Stagecoach and Rear Window and things like that, your typical intro to film kind of uh, appreciation films. Uh, but just didn't like the class sizes. I was so used to having dialogues with my teachers that being in those three and 400 student classes, it wasn't... I like the idea that you're the Larry Bird of uh, local (laughs) film, where you're just like, you go to IU just real briefly, and then you're like, this isn't for me, and you go to Indiana State. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so when I started at Indiana State, A, my dad was teaching there, so I got tuition for practically nothing. Uh, And just to kind of as an aside there, my elementary school was on campus. So it was wow. a part of the university school or the laboratory school system, which oh. used to dot universities around the country where you would have a elementary through high school on the campus of universities. And it was one of the, I think at that time, maybe 20 or 30 that were left around the United States. And what did what'd your dad teach? He was actually my vice principal and then my principal at the school. And so it unfortunately closed its doors in the eighth grade. Okay. And so I had to go to Woodrow Wilson, which was one of our middle schools there in town. I guess I need to ask, ask the inevitable, what is that like with your dad being the principal? Like, were you a pal with him? You know, it was a... I, I still sort of mourn the passing of that school because it was really cool because we were outside of the Vigo County School Corporation system. 
and many of our teachers were professors that decided to go back and kind of teach kids. And so you had a really, uh, you had your normal kind of track, but you also had a very advanced track that you could get on. And so we were doing split schedules between different teachers, I think in like fifth grade or something. So you'd have somebody that would teach you science and someone that would teach you English. So you weren't in a classroom, you were split out amongst people that were teaching you a specific course. It had really strong arts. I, I think I started on recorder in second grade and picked up the trombone in third grade. Okay. So, I mean, if you can imagine a little kid trying to play an instrument like that. Uh, Not and, that age, but yeah. Yeah. And uh, my band teacher, Judith Grimes, actually did a summer camp at the university, which was two weeks long, called the Creative Musical and Theatrical Showcase. And so you would learn dance and you would learn art and you would learn music and you'd be on campus living in the dorms. And from, I think, geez, I think it was 1986 was my first one. So I was nine years old when I did that. So you hear about like Interlock and Academy and a lot of these kind of arts focused schools. It was kind of something along those lines. We had a lot of people that graduated out of that and went on to TV careers and things like that later. Okay. So let's go back a little then. I feel like I'm getting way away from film. No, it's fine. It's fine. Oh, first movie. Do you remember the first movie? You know, I actually asked my parents because I, from having listened to your other podcasts, they seem to think that my, the first movie that they took me to was like Winnie the Pooh or something like that, you know, really young. The first one that I can recall seeing was a drive-in movie. We went and saw The Muppets Take Manhattan, which would have been 1984. So I okay. would have been seven when I saw that. And that was out uh, east of Terre Haute on US-40. They had a drive-in, and my parents had a Chevy Monza, which was a two-door station wagon. And so it had the roof rack. They'd throw some blankets up there for us. They'd stay downstairs, and we'd be up in the roof rack watching the film up oh, there. that sounds so cool. <laughs> yeah, and the th- funny thing I remember about that is it was always a double feature. And after the Muppets Take Manhattan was done, the Ice Pirates came on. And we got into the beginning uh, I, I, sequence of that. And my parents were like, nope. <laughs> is that, I remember seeing that at a sleepover. And like, um, yeah. that's the one I still, I've seen this gag done multiple times, but that's the one where the dude's head gets cut off, but he doesn't realize it. And it takes a second <laughs> before he walks before the head pops off. Yeah. Is yeah. that in the opening sequence or what, uh, what is the, uh... it was like a big space battle going on in the beginning of it. It was kind of a body sci-fi film and I've, I've seen it since but it's been forever. And it was one of those things that I think I saw those first few minutes and then I didn't watch the rest of the film until like maybe 15, 20 years ago. So it was in the 2000s already when I watched it. Do you remember, how was it when you watched it later? Uh, I mean, it kind of reminded me of Logan's Run meets Flash Gordon. I, I so I mean, kind of campy. And it was not, supposed to have that takeoff, uh, weak Star Wars, uh, be, be Star Wars vibe yeah. to it. But, but also kind of like, uh, kind of reminded me of like Barbarella. Okay. But with like Robert Urich. So it was yeah, kind of yeah. like uh, the pacing wasn't great and the effects were okay. You know, it was kind of low budget space fare. Yeah. You know, no, no, that makes sense. So, yeah. I mean, I'm hearing that theatrical wasn't a big deal. It was more VCR. Yeah. And I, I, I think that that was mainly because my parents were both teachers and didn't have a background in it. What'd your mom teach? She actually, um, when she started teaching again, because when we were born, my siblings, I have an older sister and a younger sister. And so Jessica was born in April of 75. I was March of 77. Julie was October of 78. So kind of bip, 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 they had their kids. And it wasn't until I think 
84, 85 that mom went back to teaching and then she was teaching kindergarten and she sort of stair-stepped through kindergarten, first grade, third grade, and then wrapped up as a fifth grade reading coach out of the system so okay um this is also a first uh for the podcast i've never talked to anyone about this um so were you uh religious growing up catholic Catholic? yes saint benedict's catholic church okay there in Terre Haute. so lovely if you if anybody's a fan of churches it's a good old red brick church which unfortunately suffered a fire in the 30s and somebody they were renovating it had a cathedral dome on it that it actually kind of reminds me of what's the church in london that everybody always talks about st mark's yes i think that so it's got that big you know with the glass all around it big cathedral dome and it was right at the cross of the church and they were actually restoring doing some repainting on the windows and somebody lit a cigarette and left it on one of the sills started a fire and of course, at that time, they had no hoses that could reach up that far. So the entire dome collapsed into the church. And uh, they had an archangel up on top that crashed through the marble floor. And supposedly, little urban legend tarot is still upside down in the basement of the church, buried in the foundation. Yeah, my, my dad loves to tell this story of uh, when I was really young. There was the big tornado in 82 in Evansville. Mm. And my dad said it was because um, they moved the graves with some nuns the day before my dad's convinced that's why the big tornado happened but yeah um so i guess you mainly work on um is it fair to say you mainly work on uh, religious based or faith-based movies i like to say faith-based family faith-based family more of the uh, i mean chip writes them faith-based but chip i like Zeddy. to stress the family yeah i mean quality films that people can take their whole family to is the way that i like to it but with the faith bent on it okay. so when was i mean when did you first uh when were you first exposed to them faith-based films or what yeah faith-based, oh. family-based. Um, anything that anything what was the first movies you saw that you thought uh, you saw your uh, saw your catholic faith reflected in them Ooh. I, I wouldn't say that uh, it wasn't really until I started looking, searching when it came to my faith, because I, I think I fell into the trap that a lot of Catholics do, where you become holiday Catholics. And I think that uh, Kevin Smith explained it once in one of his smodcasts, where he, because you know, he had his problems with the Catholic faith, you know, his Evanston dogma sure. and all that. He talks about faith being, you have this cup when you're a kid, and you know you're analogy. pouring the amount of the amount of religion, the faith into it. But as you get older, your cup gets bigger and the same amount of religion doesn't fill it the way that it used to. And so I think that I was kind of wandering for quite some time, you know, especially after I got out on my own, I didn't find, I was, my faith was really tied to my home church. It was where I was brought up. And so I sort of had this locale associated with where my faith came from. And so when I moved to Evansville, I tried out a few different churches and just never really found one that felt like a home. And so I started searching and it wasn't really until I met Chip and started making these, I'd already sort of started moving more towards a more general Christian faith and been searching to that. But it wasn't really until I got into that kind of film family that it opened up my mind and exposed me to more people with greater faith and more passionate faith that helped me along my faith walk. Well, I, I... So it wasn't like I saw a faith-based film and said, this is my calling or anything. It was more... I was searching and I got well, found. I think one of the fascinating things, when I first met you, I had the reaction I have whenever someone says they make faith-based movies. And mm-hmm. then I talked to you for like five, ten minutes and clearly realized you understand that. Like mm-hmm. the, a lot of the faith, like I, I can't remember if I had this conversation with uh, Aaron Smith on the podcast or after the podcast, but we were talking about how 
um, a lot of the faith-based movies that come through specifically Evansville are just like very formulaic mm-hmm. at Drek. And like, so we want to be on the side of like, well, there's religious filmmakers. Like, yeah. and I kept bringing up like uh, Brisson or Scorsese, obviously, even yeah. though a lot of what they, they will talk about is their conflict or, or yeah. Bergman, you know, with silence, trying to figure out, talking with God. And there's an artistic way of doing it, but that's very clearly, that's not going to bring, it's not that you just put the, uh, religious christian stamp on something and it's going to bring these people out it's it's still this type of film yeah yeah and i think that to me and it kind of i remember that conversation to me i would rather you say i'm going to make a movie about people doing the right things for the right reasons and to me that can fall into the genre of a faith-based film you know it can be a morality tale and not necessarily have to mention scripture i think the some of the worst parts in faith-based films for me is when people start quoting the bible because in most aspects of my life i think you do a lot more through modeling behavior to people than necessarily quoting there was a guy on isu's campus that used to stand out by the fountain and just yell scripture at people when they would walk by and you could just everybody tuned him out because it was just noise and I always think that if you can tell something, a compelling story that people can respond to and realize is coming from a point of faith rather than necessarily waving a Bible around at people, it can be much more impactful. When Chip and I have had these kind of discussions, there's a, an audience for people that do these formulaic faith-based films and i don't knock any of them because it's the same thing that's coming out of hollywood they've got a formula for the way that they do things but people that like to hear those types of films they like to hear the scripture and they like to be preached to in that manner wrapped up into those kinds of rappers so you're always going to see those but i know that when it comes to films that i've seen that have truly had an impact it's because of the way that the characters are written and the way that they interact and what they're doing rather than necessarily the, the same. Well, I it. guess I'm curious if you have any good examples of something that would basically seem like it was coming from a secular filmmaker mm-hmm. but had, well, maybe financed from a secular financier, but someone mm-hmm. who had a, either religious theme or is it just simply the val- like the values that came out of it like, appealed to you in some way? Like, like a, a strong movie that inspired you, like this is the type of filmmaking I want to be doing. So when I talk about... I always kind of, when I talk about something that's faith-based, you know, like when I grew up, mom used to like to watch South Pacific and stuff like that, but she also liked the Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur and all those types of things. Okay. Very epic kind of films. But as an adult, the I think the strongest, most visceral, visceral reaction I've ever had to a film was actually The Passion of the Christ. Okay. And that one tore me down. But... It was a very immersive experience. And again, I don't know if it was, I don't know if I was really making the connection of this is Jesus's story and, you know, this is his life because I know that it's an interpretation. But to me, what really got to me was obviously the flailing scene in that is just horrible to watch. It's so graphic. I was working at a show place north at the time Mm -hmm. and, um, we had a few faints. We had a bunch yeah. of fainting. I want to say we had a seizure. I remember at the time noting that uh, uh, someone had a heart attack and died in Kansas, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Someone. Yeah. Well, and my big point in it, uh, 
and sort of my what made me realize that this was my trigger was there's a point where Jesus is carrying the cross and there's a point where Mary sees him carrying the cross Mm -hmm. and she can't get to him and so my big trigger is self-sacrifice especially by parents I've got a very strong connection with my parents. So, like, I cry at the end of Armageddon when Bruce Willis does his speech because, again, he's saying goodbye to his daughter and he's sacrificing his life. And, yes, he's doing it for the entire planet, but you boil it down for he's doing it for her. And so if you can do that even passably well for me, it really gets me. So when I saw The Passion of the Christ, that's when I really just started openly weeping at that point is because I saw her reaching for her son. And that was it. She wasn't reaching to him because he was the Christ. She was reaching him because she was a mother that was just trying to do anything to save her son from this horrible ordeal that he was going through. Well, let's let's broaden, broaden it out. What are the defining movies mainly? I guess your late teens or college or when did you, when did you uh, movie fever take over? Mm. Well, I had always grown up being the kid in the, whenever we would take family vacations, my dad working at the university had access to one of the full-size VHS camcorders. So we would always bring those along and I'd be the one recording family trips. So was it more of a, you came to to films via filmmaking? In a way, I mean, I've still got some things when I was a kid where we would take the camcorder and we did like a, there's one that I did that was like just film trailers where we made up you know drew on eight and a half by 11 paper like barbie 2 or transformers this that or the other and we did fake ones and uh, would do stuff at friends houses where we would record things but i don't think i really started making anything of my own until uh, we did one thing for a, a classical literature class in high school where we did Medea and the Golden Bat instead of the Golden Fleece. Okay. And it's like a 10-minute-long capstone project for the end of the year. And I think I've, I might have that up on my YouTube channel just because I have some of those things. You do? You have? I, I, th- I, you know, I know I've got it. I don't know. I might have been a little too embarrassed to I, put it up. But... I posted a bunch of my middle school, uh, high school stuff, and yeah. I, I felt like it was a – I'm glad to hear this because uh, there's parts of me that felt like it was a vanity thing too. I did. Yeah. In fact, because one of them, let's just say, has it aged well or <laughs> is maybe a little, yeah. as the kids say now, problematic. Yeah. Um, and so I had to do a commentary on it. Yeah. And that's the, I think I took down the original video itself. Well, and that one was significant for me just because, and I know you, again, have talked about this in other podcasts, but that was the first one where I took two VCRs and was doing AB roll. But oh, I man. think my biggest like lightning bolt in doing that was I realized that I could roll the video and take like my CD player and roll music just like on the cutscenes. So if I was doing wanting to do a title card and I just wanted to have music behind it, plugging in my CD player and just having the video roll on the title card, but then having the CD player playing music instead, you know, being able to plug that in. I was late to high school before I figured that out too. Well, and it was, there weren't really any, I mean, I was in AV club in middle school, and I was in, I didn't do any of that in high school. I don't even know if we had an AV club. We must have, but I don't remember anybody being a part of it. I was into music at that point, playing in the band, and I was like super freak for band <laughs> inside. I was in the marching band, and okay. I was in jazz band, and all that other type of stuff. Um, but So it wasn't really until I got back into college again that I decided that that was something I wanted to do. And it was always a, I've got an uncle, Keith, who I always credit 
kind of with my love of gadgets. And I think that's probably where it started. Gadgets. Yeah. I mean, like VCRs and DVD players and video equipment and all that other type of stuff. It came from a love of uh, him always having that next new thing. He was the first person in our family to own a Betamax, which I still actually have. It's an old Sanyo <laughs> Betamax. Uh, which has like a little sticker on it for I think the 84 Summer Olympics because Sanya was a sponsor for it. and it has the wired remote <laughs> and everything like that. So I think that I kind of credit him with that. Mom and dad, of course, were big with teaching and storytelling and they would always take us to the convocation series. So they were always about creativity, but there was really nobody that I knew in Terre Haute when I was growing up that had that film background. And even when I got to Indiana State, None of the professors there had pursued that. They were all TV and broadcast. We're we're not too far apart in age, but I do remember this feeling uh, in Evansville specifically. No one, everyone. There was a lot of people that wanted to be filmmakers around here, right. but no, we had to accept like no model, including which weirdly like, you know, one of Tarantino's favorite directors, Bud Bedecker, He mm-hmm. went to like, my my high school. He wasn't from really? Evansville, but he went to my high school. But we really huh. didn't have any model. No mentors to step up and kind of give yeah, you that yeah. shorthand. Well, there's also the interesting thing I'm finding was um, hearing you, t- you tell your story that there's always this pilgrimage aspect to certain things with kids in small towns where they're like, we need to go to a big city before we do the arts. And right. you know, the fact that you came to Evansville to be like, because <laughs> I, I made a very, my first move uh, was to Louisville. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I was like, I'm going to make it as a screenwriter in Louisville just because yeah. I needed a cheap cost of living. But yeah. Um, so and back then there wasn't Atlanta. I, mean, I think at that point uh, you might have started seeing some filmmaking going on like North Carolina and Vancouver, but there was nothing outside of L.A. Yeah, formalized there, going I, on. There was a vague, even to this day, there's still that uh, music video industry in Nashville. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I mean, I, they wouldn't have had the state incentives at that point, too. I think the thing that uh, my problem was when I was in Terre Haute is I could not imagine living in L.A., because the few people that I knew that had been out there and had been back, either because they'd been whipped so badly by it, had nothing good to say about it. So the people that I did run into that had been out there, none of them said that it was a good life choice. <laughs> so coming from a standpoint of no knowledge, and at that point, you know, uh, especially leaving high school, there was no internet. Wait, what were know? they? What were they saying about LA? Oh, that it was just a cesspool and the traffic and you know all the all the negatives you can come up to a place without acknowledging any of the positives is what people I were think, saying about I, it. I find that I mean I get it because I I mean I avoided LA forever mm-hmm. and um and but for me it was cost of living it wasn't the cesspool aspect and yeah but I mean I, I you seem like someone that actually I think would flourish in LA. I mean, well, I, well let, let's get maybe now. now I mean, I've now, I've grown now. a lot. That's what I mean. Now, since yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe not. So. I don't know. So, okay. So, um, what did you do after college? Uh, with your degree, you know, what was funny is that I was actually uh, in the management and training program at Circuit City <laughs> while I after I got out of college. So there I, is a lot of clarity coming through yeah. right now. The, the, I can see you in the Circuit City uniform very yep, clearly. Yeah, I've right still now. got a couple of my Circuit City shirts at home. I, I'm a minor hoarder <laughs> <laughs> because I always think that uh, someday I've still got a. I, I did uh, worked at actually a beer distributorship and kept some of my stuff from that too because I'm just like this could be cool costuming someday. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I came out of that and I wasn't quite sure I I'd had uh, this great life plan of all the way up through graduation of college 
And at that, because I always knew that my parents wanted us to go to school, and so that's what I geared sort of my entire youth to. But as far as a plan afterwards, I had no plan whatsoever. And so I had been working at Circuit City for a couple years, and my managers all liked me, and they acknowledged my intelligence and all that other type of thing, and then put me in the manager and training program. But I saw that the oh, that they were losing out on their commissions and a lot of their good salespeople were leaving. And I remember the uh, the CEO at that time was a guy that called himself Martinez instead of Martinez. Okay. So he had an ethnic back name that he had anglicized. And for me, I think I still was holding a little bit of my vitriol from youth to kind of go, well, if the CEO can't even own up to his last name, <laughs> I don't know how well this company is going to do. And so I started taking some interviews. I interviewed in Indianapolis at a couple places and got some, uh, offered a job at a place that right on Meridian downtown where all the TV stations and everything are. But they had sent me home with a tape that was like classic tractor fever. And I thought to myself, I don't know if I'd be able to look at myself in the mirror every day if Wait, I was what it, what... it was a you know they did their sets in the same place that across Indiana does so a lot of the video projects they were doing were kind of folksy you know agrarian based things and so they sent me this tape was called classic tractor fever and they basically kind of like how my classic card does they went around to people that had restored tractors and this is this is a 1942 Allison Chalmers, and it's got the uh, <laughs> the drivetrain on it, and it'll it'll chew up a half acre in is less this, than an hour. <laughs> I, guess, I guess I'm just wholly unfamiliar. Is this the type of stuff that would play like um, on Sunday mornings right before football starts or something like that? It might have shown on there. To me, I think it was a part of the home video industry. You know, they gave me a VHS tape, and I think it was just things that they distributed out to people that people would buy. You know, because they were into tractors and other such. So, so. when you're applying here, are you applying as a videographer? Um, yeah. I'm, I think I actually ended up... Um, the only place that I got a call back from here in, was at Stage 1 at Me Johnson. And they were looking for somebody to be an assistant editor and also an AV person because they handled all of the projector deliveries and all that other type of jazz for Me Johnson. And so I sat with a lady named Pam Towery, and I think I started the week before September 11th, 2001. So it was like the previous Wednesday is my, was my first day at Mead Johnson. And so four days in, you know, that was my first, you know, big life experience down here. And so I sat next to Pam's elbow when I could as she was editing things. But she, in late November of that year, told John, my boss at the time, John Colbert, that she was going to move back to Ohio. So two months after I started, you got the, you got I the got the, the center chair. Okay. And so we were working on a Grass Valley system then, which was AB roll and had one graphics track above it. I think you had 16 channels of audio, two channels of video, and then you could use a plugin called Boris Effects to overlay on top of that to do any graphics work. I'm trying to see, I came to nonlinear editing probably about two years after this, and it was at USI. I learned on Premiere, but I remember yeah. Final Cut was the big program at the time. I had one semester on Final Cut before I graduated from Indiana State. They had just bought I'm trying to, it would have been G3s back then, you know, the colored G3 towers that they came out with. Maybe. It, yeah. it, it was weird at USI, too, just because, uh, I've mentioned this elsewhere, um, 
they their RTF program was geared towards TV news, and mm-hmm. it was this weird um, PC based thing. And so yeah. they had, like uh, Premiere was uh, Final Cut is uh, Final Cut was Mac only, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they had one giant Mac lab, and mm-hmm. uh, and they they went with Premiere for some reason, but Premiere was also at the time awesome. Like it was mm. weird just because like I learned on it, and um, it's it's uh, to a certain extent kind of as innovative as it is today where mm-hmm. like it, it tried to bring in a lot of its other different like it was a very good uh graphic design yes. to mess around with the mess around with that because i did it in a video art class i didn't do okay. i did it outside the rtf thing it was like a 400 level class okay yeah with the arts but um so um how long did how long were you at me johnson i was there for 12 years okay. yeah so- and uh i think we switched over we were on that system for another three or four years, and then we switched over to Premiere, or excuse me, Final Cut at that point. This is just uh, corporate video type stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Me Johnson is a international infant formula, and at that time they had some adult nutritionals too. So we were doing things you know, about baby formula and corporate communications. So the president of the company would come down, and we'd cut a video with him in our studio and uh, send that out to all the various business units. Actually... Me Johnson has like a nice forty by forty studio down there in the building, so it's one of the larger studio that, unobstructed studio spaces. That's not the building that that just got torn down recently, is it? No, no. Is that actually down now? I've, no, no. So, I, I literally just drove by today and saw across okay. the street was to- tearing down. I yeah. remember there. Building sixty one, which is the one that Bristol Myers built in the mid eighties. That's where the media center was. So we oh, were down man. in the, uh, I guess that'd be the eastern end of that building. I wonder if I remember that being built just because uh, my grandma lived on that side of town it would have been 86 i'd like to say 86 87 maybe i don't remember maybe i don't remember but i do remember the patina of it being new just yeah like uh, i would have been five at the time like well it probably would have been one of the first you know multi-story large buildings built downtown or relatively close to downtown or, in a number of years or outside of downtown or yeah whatever. close well, enough to <laughs> i got in this conversation with my dad and his uh friend doug about when lloyd expressway first came into town and what it must have been a big deal yeah well, it was yeah. it was a governor brought it one of the local gov- governors from evansville is like because you know the, everyone complains all the money goes to indianapolis and yeah this is, this is very film-based stuff um <laughs> so um on, when you're working the the corporate job were you yes. um were you doing stuff on the side i was doing a few things here and there but nothing remarkable what i ended up doing was after i think i had been there for maybe six years is when i was kind of like is this all there is to life <laughs> you know is this am i gonna die chained to this desk in the building <laughs> in the basement of this building? i can imagine getting to that point very quickly yeah, yeah. so like uh i started looking for other opportunities to kind of expand what I was doing. So that's where I met Troy, and we started our three-year-long edit on the bottom line. <laughs> that's... So, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> For those of you that don't know... <laughs> no, we were, before we recorded, we uh, we were putting two and two together, but yeah. uh, was a listener of the podcast is Ross Sheath, and he, like... Um, who I knew for Showplace, and yeah. he was one of the initial per- people working with He Troy. was the one shooting on that with yeah, Troy. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I forget, did he co-write, or was it just Troy writing? I really don't remember. I don't think he wrote it, but I, I know he helped shoot it. That had mythic proportions in yeah. uh, college, just because I remember, like they put, they put, they saved money, they put money into it, um, and or uh, all around Showplace, everyone talked about Troy and Raj's movie. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I think when I started in on it, it was like a three-hour cut that they had, and it really 
it took over a year before Troy really started trusting me. And again, we were doing things on and off, and we didn't know each other beforehand, so there was no reason to trust him. But he'd been burned by people. So he would have hired you as a local editor, or he was? It was free. Okay. I was just again. When I was starting to do that kind of stuff, I was not looking to make extra money. I was just wanting to expand my experience. I was wanting to get on other people's sets and see how they handled their business and all that. And that's how I ended up with Chip was we were at an Indiana Filmmakers Network meeting and he kind of said, well, there was always a point where you could stand up and say what you were into. And he said, I'm making this movie called Right to Believe. And if anybody wants to give me a hand. And I was just like, I got two hands. (laughs) I I constantly lament. I miss being that hungry. Or I remember thinking, and I still get it a, 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 a spark of it every once in a while in a movie. Yeah. But I just remember that feeling of like, I can make this good if I really put a lot of elbow grease into it. And, yeah. And, yeah. Especially, and especially early on, you're like, uh, I also just want to do one. Like, yeah. So, I just want, so you'd be willing to do it for free. Yeah. 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 Well, and I, I think that there's still plenty of people around here that do that. I think my biggest reason why I left me Johnson finally was because I wanted to do, back in the day, Michael Rosenbaum's movie, because that was obviously the biggest thing that had been through here since A League of Their Own. So what were you going to do on it? You know, I had actually talked to my bosses, a really nice, um, I love her, Holly Brown, who's still the manager at the Media Center at Stage 1 down there. I had talked to her, and she and I was just like, I'd really like to do this, but these are the shoot dates, and it was like a, a month. And so I was just like, I'd like to take a month off to go do this. And she agreed. And so I contacted the production team at Rosenbaum and I was just like, I will do anything that you want me to do. This is my experience, but I'll fetch coffee if you want me to. I just want to get in my foot in the door. But they kept on offering me jobs that were six week commitments. And I was just like, I've got a nine to five job. I will do anything for four weeks but I can't do any more than those four weeks. And after the third thing they offered me, that was a six week thing. And I said, I can't do it. They just didn't call me again. I mean, from so. the other side, I can see that. Like they, they, the way they contract these things now is they just mm-hmm. want someone for the role the entire time. Although even but these they- were like back office things. So, and again, I, if, if it would have been four weeks, I probably would have done it, but it was like, they didn't need the PAs for six weeks. They only shot for four. So, well, it's also the, the thing traditionally at the beginning of production is when they, they're they a little more free to f- throw money at it, but they just yeah. want to make sure some, there's going to be a butt in the seat at uh, the office. So, if they yeah. if they have to d- divide up the schedule, I can see that's being tricky. What do you <laughs> so what do you throughout this time? What do you feel is you, what do you consider yourself in your in your trade? Are you a more of a videographer? Are you more of a um just on pr- a producer? Mm-hmm. Are you more of a jack of all trades well obviously with indie filmmaking you have to know a little bit of everything right but my focus right now is cinematography and that was a very conscious decision that i made probably about four years ago when chip and i were talking because chip's the director there was no getting around that and that's fine he writes it he directs it he produces it and at the time i was being listed as a producer on his films and i was very involved in the flavor of the projects and so i'd have multiple conversations with chip about what was going on but as far as the real back-end nitty-gritty stuff i wasn't really doing that on those pictures so there was a point where i said you know i'd I'd really kind of prefer if you just left the producer title off because it was starting to feel more like producer in name only i was more of a confidant that was having an influence on the way things were going Mm -hmm. and it was like so i wasn't 
I didn't know what the budgets were or, you know, the, a lot of the technical things that were going on. And it just didn't feel right to me at that point to be accepting of that credit. Let's dive into a, a Chip's, Chip's filmography. Mm -hmm. So the thing that the other one of our first conversations that blew my mind, one of the big reasons I want to have you out here on here is um, how prolific like a, a film, a regional filmmaker is, and how yes. prolific he has to be to although the money still sounded like it was there and, and, and profitable. But so, how many things have you uh, worked on with Chip? I think it's over twenty at this point. But we have like a over like, how long a period? Um, probably right around six years. Yeah, these are six these, seven years. These vary from features to TV series. Now it's more focusing in series, and that's more because of the way that the you know content creation is going content creation <laughs> is that uh, a lot of online marks. yeah a lot of online streamers are giving you better pre-buys for series they'll give you 10 times more money if you give them a series than if you give them a movie mm -hmm. because that's what people are watching now they want to binge watch you know four or five episodes of something and then fall off the radar but if it's just a film people just aren't searching that out as much anymore um, but when we first started we did a couple of shorts just to kind of, again, test the waters as a team and kind of put ourselves together. But they were mainly features. But it wasn't really until a year and a half ago that even with cash and in-kind contributions that we got over like the 6K mark, most of those were between, you know, twenty dollars and $45,000 that we were doing all those for. So they were real low-budget kind of productions. Six or 60K. Uh, six figures. Oh, six figures. Yeah, and again, okay. that's counting donations. So okay. like when we did Saving Faith, which is probably our most laudable production to this point, I think that was only 45 in cash and then probably another 40 that we counted from stuff that people had donated as far as hotel rooms and food and things like that. What are the big streamers that are putting this, uh, this stuff out? We do a lot with, obviously, like PureFlix because they're the largest Christian streamer. That's where a lot of our stuff is going now. But really, up in, and even with uh, uh, Saving Faith was distributed by a subsidiary of Lionsgate. And so they put it out to like the Amazon Primes and things like that. But they really weren't doing anything spectacular. The biggest headaches that we had in those first five and a half years were distributing because you had people still switching over from the old DVD model. Because when Chips started out, that was what most of the people were doing is they were paying for DVDs that they could sell into Lifeway and Christian bookstores and things like that. And then all the pre-buys dropped off and you were having to find the money specifically for the production budget. There was no extra money going on from that standpoint. And so then we had a couple people that burned us. We had a really, a really good guy that had split off from Affirm Films, which is a subsidiary of Sony. That's their Affirm is their faith-based wing started his own production company and he did this humongous run of dvds because we got into walmart but they needed like seventeen thousand units i do remember you talking about yeah movies into walmart and so he was movie. supposed to spend i think like 30 or 35k on marketing and then one of his investors pulled out so that money disappeared and then he got just a ton of those dvds back from walmart because their deal was is that you had to sell through a certain percentage of those units in the first two or three weeks that they were on shelves. And so our magic number was like 3,600 units in two or three weeks out of those 17,000 to remain on shelves and still be pushed. 
and I think we got to a little over 3,000, which for us, Chip's, I don't think any of Chip's movies had sold anywhere near that number, but it wasn't near enough. So Walmart, who had bought it on consignment, sent them back to Lightworks, and then they got sent off and warehoused for 50 cents on the dollar or something like that. Are they just like the, the, are, are the Ark of the Covenant by this point, just staying in a warehouse somewhere? Uh, I think Chip has a whole bunch still uh that was our movie 94 feet which was the first one that we did that i felt really good about okay and uh i so, do i do want you to what you can mention some of the titles you guys or, or some of the story what what the movies were about too oh well 94 feet was about a mine collapse and so uh i think seven or eight guys get trapped below in a coal mine and then the community above how they react to that situation and, are you shooting all these out of K- kentucky Actually, that one was shot here in Evansville. We okay. shot a little bit out in Mount Vernon at the uh, the county highway yards <laughs> out in Mount Vernon and in some of the buildings downtown. And then we were at Impact Ministries downtown, which was like the old men's club downtown. It was like three blocks south of Central Library. There's like a marathon station there now. But it was like an old YMCA kind of building. Um, and I'm struggling. Yeah, I'm, I mean, it was... I'm on lifelong Ev- from Evansville, and I'm struggling for that one. Well... <laughs> coincidentally enough it i think back in the 40s or 50s it was like a whites only club it was like the last whites only club uh, in evansville that, that sounds about right actually. yeah so we had set up chip had bought a couple of uh temporary car shelters you know how they sell at menards or anything they'll sell you like a a tent that you can put your car in oh. and he had taken he had like a 20 foot one and a 15 foot one and he set them kind of at an angle and then we took spray foam and sprayed the entire entirety of it and then painted it black to be the interior of our minds. <laughs> and we were shooting on a black magic cinema camera. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. That... Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we had looked into shooting in practical minds, but, you know, we would have had to have gone to West Virginia or something like that, and it just didn't work out. So, but uh, we shot the exterior stuff on the Sony, like, A57, which is, you know, just a DSLR, not fabulous. But then we shot all the interior mind stuff on the Black Magic, which is the first time that we shot with what I would even consider coming close towards a cinema camera. And, you know, so it at least had the Super six, super, super 35 sensor on that one. And so the interior mind stuff looks really good. And we were just lit. We had put uh, fog machines in there, so there was this constant haze. And we just lit it basically with the headlamps okay. on the miner's lights and with a little bit of fill as necessary so you got a lot of real shadowy and things like that but it looks really good and so that was the first one that i looked at and i was the only one lensing the stuff in the mind sequence because we only had the one camera um so everything that was in those portions were mine uh whereas the stuff that we shot outside chip was on one camera i was on the other so it kind of goes back into what we were saying about having to wear a lot of hats sure. when you're doing indie film so i mean you guys would always shoot a b cam not always but and Early on, I finally got Chip to get away from it. A lot of times, he used to like to shoot three cameras at once. You, so he'd be sounds doing like a, you don't like it. Ugh. Well, I mean, it, there was no way to... I, my thinking is always that once you start getting into multiple cameras, you, the mediocrity of your shots grows with the number of cameras you're trying to use. And we were working out of a very limited lens kit, too. So it's like you've got one shot on a wide and then two over the shoulders, but you're having to jockey things around in a really unappealing matter for the most part. And so it was mainly done for speed, but I always felt that by the time you shoehorned everything into that space, you could have just shot. Well, it's funny because I've, I've had this debate a lot of times. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, um, 
I am someone that does like AV cameras as an editor. I know, and even the stuff I've shot, I want to shoot. I remember having to fight over, I had to use the point of, um, I showed a behind the scenes or social network to show Fincher using two cameras. And it's like, yeah. you can still, you don't have to sacrifice the frame in theory and you can cover something. Yeah. And, and typically if you're following the line, like you at least got a little bit of coverage if you need. And, and the, People treating coverage as a dirty word. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's the editor there in me. Just annoys the crap out of me. Just yeah. because it's like it's, it's it's always these people that want to pull something off in one take and have yeah. like a you know a terrible rhythm to it, or like they're proud that they sh- did in one one take, but it's a terrible performance or it's a very yeah. mediocre performance. And so I, I but at the same time I understand the reasoning of you know that's a, that's a great way of looking at it AB, more, well not, not, i can get more behind that than abc well, the, the more cameras the more you're going to take away from your main angle that yeah. totally makes sense to me that totally makes sense to me um, well a lot of times what i would end up and then part of the problem was is that what we would end up with again because we we're working out of a too limited of a lens kit is you'd have a 35 on one camera a 50 on the other and so just when I would see those shots, just the difference in depth would be a little bit off. And then you were pushing one camera too far in to make up for the fact that it was a wider lens. That makes so sense. if I'd have had two 35s or two 50s, I'm certain I would have liked it more. Okay. But even though I, I wasn't, I don't know if I was really even thinking in those terms because I don't have like a film school background. All this is stuff that I'm learning just like that doesn't look quite right to I'm me. A, I, I'm acknowledging that like that that kind of coverage is something we always used to derisively call it TV-ish or something like that. Or yeah. we'd call it, um, oh, what's the, um, uh, Dragnet. We'd call it Dragnet cutting or stuff like that. Was, yeah. And um, I get that, but there's also a certain aspect of as an editor, you want the option to ri- make a rhythm out of something. Right. But, but I, could, I mean, and you know typically it'd be like you paint one with your wide angle lens and then your long lens is where you just like get on someone's face an actor's face or something like that yeah yeah but um so what were some of the other movies uh i think the one that i always point to is sort of being our triumph (laughs) in a way was we shot a movie called the borrowed christmas and again this was pretty early on too and the only reason it's a pretty bad movie from a production standpoint there are a lot of bad audio and a lot of bad a lot of soft shots um, but it's because we shot it in four and a half days for less than five thousand dollars yeah i mean it was what's the page rate on that what was what what's the well i mean okay it's a full feature length right yeah so we're talking like a good 100 page script um probably 90 ish okay Um, but it was basically a a project born out of uh, economics so somebody whistled up chip and was just like hey i'm looking for christmas films do you have any and chip had a script and this was like mid-march and chip was like no but when would you need one and the guy was like, well, I'd at least need to see a rough by, like, May 1. This is some Christian <laughs> Ed Wood stuff here. <laughs> yeah. So the story behind that was is Chip got called up by a distributor and said, hey, we need an... You already went through that. So so basically Chip said, well, I can have something for you. And that started, I think, two and a half, three weeks later, we were shooting on this thing. So the script that he had was actually a play. And Chip took that and adapted it into a screenplay kind of because we ended up shooting at like a place out in Newburgh to serve as a store and then we shot at one of the houses along Riverside for like absolutely the rest of it we used like the hallway the front stoop and the living room so everything was almost taking place in the same exact space so when you watch the film 
it doesn't travel very much and i think the pacing kind of suffers because of it because you're always in the same place but the problem that i have with it is that it actually had a really good heart to it and the resolution of the story was actually pretty sweet it's about a man who has no family but he's got money and so he goes to a place that rents everything and he tells the woman behind the counter i want to rent an old-fashioned christmas so she plays the wife and she gets some orphans to play the kids and so he invents this family and at the end of it as most feel-good movies probably are spoiler he ends up falling in love with her and adopts the kids and everybody lives happily ever after and people really enjoyed it and it's something that we've talked to a lot about going back and revisiting and doing it right because we really like the premise of the story and we like where it came out we just didn't like that at that point and what we were doing we had no time whatsoever to do anything with it and i just remember i would sit in the premieres and we went to a couple different places because the people that were in it were from a couple different geographies and i just kept sliding further and further down in my seat every time i would see a, a fuzzy shot or the audio would be bad and it just killed me every time but the fact that we were able to make it at all was somewhat of an amazing thing. How many, I don't know if you'd be able to answer this, but how many um, pockets of people making films like this, whether it's for uh, faith-based uh, streamers or like in the or regional, like, like you, you seem to me, you're like my gateway to regional filmmaking in many <laughs> ways. Like I just, I just, I, when you, when you're in the bigger cities, like you just like, I don't see how anyone can make money off this outside of the main hubs. You know, I, uh, I remember watching a clip and it was from like a Star Trek convention and it was out in Arizona and they, somebody had asked, um, oh, the guy who played Jordy LaForge, I just had his name, uh, LeVar Burton. Burton, and he was a part of a local filmmaking group. And he was just like, in your opinion, do you have to go out to L.A. to be in this industry? And his response, I can't Jordy's response, <laughs> LeVar's response was well what is it that you're trying to accomplish you know do you enjoy what you're doing do you like who you're working with he was like yeah we have a great time and we're making the movies we want to make and he was just like then there's no reason for you to move out to la well, there's, there's no reason to be a part of that machine unless you're wanting to make studio pictures and have somebody else to a great degree dictate what it is you're making i i i there's a part of me that thinks that almost everybody that moves out to la that's uh below the line wanted to be a director at some point and yeah. then got a mortgage like that—that's vaguely the vibe I get. That they like, are they—they they got a mortgage and they got into union right. uh, under a specific job and they stayed with that. I mean, that's yeah. a really broad, paint uh, brushed paint. A lot right. Of it, but, um, I mean, you think of all the people. I mean, just the people that we saw at the our film festival last year that are out there making great stuff. You know, whether and I know that most of the stuff that the people liked were the AFI Conservatory and the Sundance pictures that we were able to get and the ones that made it into the bigs. But one of the shorts that we showed was a college kid from northern indiana that did the duck everlasting one i don't know if you got a chance to see it it's five minutes long and the animation is not fabulous but it's like stylized but it's about a duck that is immortal and he keeps dying but death keeps passing him over and so it's a really cute quirky little short and i saw a bunch of stuff from people that are just making really wonderful things and I guess in a way it's good for me that most times I can divorce myself from the largesse of production when I watch something. 
So it doesn't, I can see that it's a film that didn't have a whole lot of money behind it. So my viewing becomes more forgiving when I'm watching something like that because I can empathize with that filmmaker. They're trying to create art with having very little resources at their disposal. Do you do that because of your production experience? Partially, but I think I'm also just an empathetic person. You know, I, I like we were talking about, we give people the benefit of the doubt and we want to see people succeed. I'm not, I'm, I succumb to probably schadenfreude as much as some people, but maybe not as much as most people do okay. in this culture. I don't, I like to see people win. And that's one of the reasons why I think I fell in love with the festival to a certain degree, because I liked giving people that audience in that portal to have people see the work that they're doing, because I know it, it it's a cost. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and um, let's talk about uh, more about the uh, Victory. It's a Victory International Film Festival. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, so um, first off, is there anything grand you got idea for second year? I think the main thing that I had said I got in my mind last year is that I wanted to expand a room into like the Hilton, the Doubletree downtown so that we had a lo another large space because the main thing that I think we were running into was the best space that we had at Old National Public Theater, which was actually theater style, was only 50 seats. So people were stacked on top of each other like cordwood trying to watch some of the things in well, there. Also, was, wasn't it kind of prohibitively ex expensive to get... Uh, I mean, compared to everything else, because we got everything else for free. So, yeah, it was the, other than the victory itself that we used for opening night, it was the largest single line expense for a... Is there any chance that uh, something more is going to be shown in the victory itself? Probably not multiple day yet, just because of the expense of it. Okay. I mean, you're talking, you know, five figures to be in there for a full day if we were lucky. And, and that's even a good deal. You know, so, and I can't say enough about the folks at the Friends of the Victory that helped us do that last year, but we're just not in a financial position. And plus, it's, it's a barn. You know, it's 1,800 seats, 1,600 seats, something like that. Okay. So, I mean, it just doesn't make logistical sense to be in that large of a space yet because we haven't grown our, grown our audience enough. You know, we looked at last year, and I think I estimated attendance at a little over 500 which I was happy with for a first year event, but by no means that was 500 people spread out over four different screening spaces. So there's no reason to add over like three days. Um, it was the evening Thursday night evening as we do our opening night and then all day Friday and then all day Saturday plus the award ceremony. Okay. So I think that what I'd easily in one of those ballrooms there at the double tree, we could put a hundred, 120 seats in one of those and have it on a larger projection screen there in that space and um, probably the stone family medical center downtown has a nice first floor auditorium i don't know if you're familiar with that no. but it's a collaborative space between iu u of e ivy tech um and the stone is the guy that runs the sicc on the other side which is like a global uh, business aggregator it's like a multi-billion dollar international company headquarters here in Evansville and so he gave a whole bunch of money for that and it's a beautiful building but they have a lecture space on the first floor that's you know tiered seating with the desks but I always thought that would make a nice space for people to watch things well, in too. So. not to contradict what we were talking about earlier where you were pointing out that the regional stuff was interesting but mm -hmm. I, I kept telling you first off congratulations on the first the first round but I, Thanks. I did not have good expectations based on <laughs> local festival and I, I yeah. most everything I saw after I had one bad screening but after that, like everything I saw there was good. And like there was one feature there from New York. I can't remember the name of it, but uh, was yeah. really like I. It's, was it the one where the woman was dealing with the death of 
she was like interacting with other actors that mm-hmm. were acting as members of her family. Yeah, yeah it was the, it was kind of like an improv group that all of them had a parent that had died. Yeah, or, almost or, like a Greek choir that was acting as her family or uh, something and like they that. They had that ongoing gag about they were trying uh, they couldn't afford to get uh, the Leonard Cohen Hallelujah. Yeah. Oh man, then when that that paid off, I wish I could remember the name of that movie. Like that yeah. is that like she's I, a Brooklyn-based filmmaker. Yeah, and it, mm. it's. I mean, going to bigger festivals like you always see, it just feels like minor league, uh, uh, trying to minor leaguers trying to get into the majors. Right. And here we actually felt like genuine, like. And, but my point being, you found good luck kind of scouring uh, other festivals. Yes. Is that are you doing that now? Or? Yes, uh, and actually, I, I kind of want to mention. I think the reason why we got so many interesting films is what I ended up doing is that. Sundance put everybody's contact information online for their short series, which was amazing. They had their phone numbers and email addresses, so it took the amount of sleuthing that I had to do down to zero for that. But as I would get responses back from those filmmakers, I'd say, I really appreciate your submission. By the way, are there any filmmakers or films that you think I should be looking into? Which is what led us to the AFI Conservatory. Somebody mentioned somebody that had just graduated out of that. And I was just like, and is there anybody in your graduating class that you think I should be content? And they'd put me onto three or four other people. And, you know, so that just sort of spiraled amongst all of these young auteurs and helped me to expand that to maybe people that, necessarily didn't make it into Sundance or these other places but we're still doing really interesting offbeat work okay. so and I I'd like to expand out to other festivals this year and a lot of it is just getting more boots on the ground to help out with that because you know last year you know it, it just about killed me to well, put the festival together how's it looking right now uh, you know, we're just now starting, really starting the planning process on it, which actually puts us at about where we were last year, because we actually didn't sign the deal with the Friends of the Victory until the first week of February of 2019, so we didn't even have a name or know that we were going to have that apparatus in place, but we're already a lot further downfield because of all the relationships we established last year. <laughs> How many, so now, is it three or two festivals in town? There's May Day, and I thought there was another one still in town. Um, or is it just May Day? You know, we've got May Day, which is, I think, going to be in its 12th year this year. Yeah, because it started out at USI. Uh, Daniel Hyatt and uh, Ryan McCurdy, who's down in Atlanta now, and doing the PA thing and trying to get into breaking into the film industry down there. They started it at USI, and I don't know who else started with that. I don't think it was just the two of them. But them and Christine Farley have kind of kept the lamp oil burning on that. And then Mark's Pyle started one at KWC down in Owensboro, Kentucky Wesleyan last year. So that's close enough, you know, 20, 25 minutes that I would consider that a, you know, Ohio Valley, Evansville area. I'm going to get Johnny Depp to come back for that one. Yeah, that'd be really cool. I'm going to, for this year, kind of talking about what we'd like to do better, I want to try to bring in a celebrity of some sort to this. We've actually. Last year, I was so hesitant when I was planning it because I didn't know how much money we were going to have. And since we were dealing with a 501c3, they were like, we're fine letting you borrow our nonprofit status and helping you out with the logistical back end, but you cannot lose money. And so I don't have a film festival background. I don't know what it takes money-wise to put those kinds of things on. So anytime I was trying to reach out to somebody, I was specifically asking people, how much do you need to come in? And I was not getting any clear answers. You right. know, it wasn't like yeah. airfare plus or anything like that. They would give one of those very roundabout, well, how much money do you have? And I'd be like, I have none. 
<laughs> but if you tell me how much you need, I can try to find it, but I can never get those kinds of straight that answers. That is a producer's dilemma. Typically the asking of like, or what the producers ask is, what is your budget? Just because yeah. you want to see as much as you can get out of somebody yeah. in that situation. Reasonably so, too, yeah. to some extent. But. And we've worked with some celebrities or people that had celebrity with the movies that we're doing. So like, uh, oh... Um, Victoria Jackson from Saturday Night Live she likes me and we worked on a couple projects together and so I contacted her I had just recently worked with Silk Cozart who was in White Man Can't Jump and Conspiracy Theory so reached out to people that were at arm's length Uh, tried contacting Michael Rosenbaum which I'm going to try to do again this year because he's an Evansville Newburgh native and I would love to have him come back especially with what he did back in the with back in the day back in the day have him come back because i think it's important to recognize the five-year anniversary back in the day yeah i wish ron glass was still alive i would have loved to have him come back and i know he he i actually met him uh when they were opening up something at the african-american history museum and got to re-edit his reel to show at the event that they had there does he come back to town did he come back to town much he did and you know i think he still had family in the area at the time but i mean he passed away 10 years ago oh i didn't even know it was that long yeah it's been a long time um maybe not that long but i think it's been just about so uh very nice man you know i knew him from barney miller i hadn't even watched you know firefly yet at that point i was a firefly surrounding yeah well and that's the thing is maybe that would kind of help date when he was here because i hadn't watched firefly yet i think i had seen like the first episode with the train you know (laughs) on and i didn't get it so yeah, but I think that uh, for me, getting the celebrity you had mentioned in some of your previous podcasts, I think the one what was the name of your former manager at Showplace, uh, Aaron Smith. Aaron Smith. You had mentioned the fact of uh, the culture of bringing people out to the theaters, and so kind of my nefarious <laughs> goal for this is to make it enough of an event to help educate and entertain our community on what film can be yeah and that what we're doing with the film series down at the central library showing a movie every month is not necessarily it's of course about what we're watching which is but cur- i love community curated by uh, ted haycraft former yeah guest yeah ted haycraft. yeah and so what i want to do is provide people a space where they can be inspired you know, whether or not they decide to go into filmmaking or not, I want them to like living in this community and meet their neighbors and realize that there's a shared lexicon and language to film that they can engage in together. Well, it's it's tricky. It's also just, it's the weirdest thing coming back where, like, uh, there has been a genuine fight by some people that stuck around town that have been trying to make a little bit of culture still in town. Like, yeah. It, it's, it does seem like, uh, you know, pushing the boulder up the hill, but at the same time, like, there is something here. Um, yeah. I've got a friend I just love. I want to share this quote with your listeners just because I love it so much. But one of the guys I knew from my time at the laboratory school who spent some time overseas when he was a young kid, he wrote a kid's book called Sedikit Sedikit Menhadi Bukit. And it stands for Little by Little We Climb the Mountain. And so it's kind of become one of my, plus I just love the alliteration of saying Sedikit Sedikit mm-hmm. Menhadi Bukit. Uh, and so whenever anybody talks to me about how it's a long road, you think of Sisyphus, but, you know, little by little, you can move that stone. Balancing it on top of the mountain would then be <laughs> the problem at the end of it. But I don't think that anything's impossible if you've got a laudable goal, which I think what you do, what I do, what we're trying to do yeah. definitely is. Shared values. Um, well, Matthew Ohm, I think that's as good as a spot to leave off on. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you very much, Shane.